Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Jared Etzel. We're at Domain Roy Effie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's August 6, 2020. Uh, thank you so much, Jared, for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, first question for you, and the most important for what we're doing here, is why wine? Well, um, why wine? I think it was a evolutionary thing. Um, I grew up on the Beaufort property um, from about the age of three. Um, my brothers and I were born in Colorado Springs on Pikes Peak, um, and then uh, we moved out to uh, Oregon uh, in the Willamette Valley, well, the, the Beaufort property um, in 86, and um, from that point on, we were in it. Um, it was kind of wild west uh, back then. The Beaufort farm was, uh, as my brother and dad have probably told you more in depth, it was um, a pig farm, um, 80 acre uh, site that uh, didn't have vineyard or anything on it. Um, And there were very few vineyards uh, in the area at the time. Um, They were spurred uh, to start Beaufort from a random family vacation. Um, They were out uh, visiting the um, ski expo, uh, had a Saturday to kill, and uh, they had found in the newspaper a foreclosure listing, and the property was uh, was relatively inexpensive. And they said, "What the heck? Why don't we just go look at it? We don't have anything better to do." So they went out and looked at it, and. Um, it really excited both my mom and dad. And uh, I think my dad had always liked the idea of growing grapes. He hadn't done it, but he had drank a lot of wine um, and gotten into wine through uh, my uncle, uh, Bob Parker. <laughs> and um, that kind of spurred everything. So they did a little bit of due diligence. I think it was David Adelsheim um, that came and looked at the property, if I'm not mistaken, and and he kind of gave it a quick blessing that looks like it's the right aspect and slope and soil. Um, And the plan was just to grow grapes. So they, um, you know, gathered the minimal resources that they had. They planted a little by little. And uh, my brothers and I were super young. I mean, we were, you know, I was three, so uh, I don't remember a whole lot from the very, very beginning. I look at pictures of us uh, out there playing and uh, on the property. Uh, and we kind of grew as the vineyard grew and, um, and we're out there on the farm through the struggles. Uh, it certainly wasn't uh, easy back then. It was, 
you know, everything was challenging from the lack of, you know, having money, barely having enough money to um, get the farm going to, I think, figuring out how to farm the vines and having the crew to do it and just, I guess for lack of a better way to describe it, it's kind of like the Wild West. I mean, it was like just raw, rough piece of land that you're trying to slowly um, shape into uh, the vineyard. And so we probably absorbed a lot osmotically, so to say, um, by, you know, living on the farm with my brothers. Um, we started working in the vineyard uh, quite young. Uh, was probably around 10, 7 to 10, I'm not exactly sure. Weeding, suckering. Um, my dad used this uh, plastic to mulch under the rows to keep the weeds down because the, back then everything was still you know trying to sort out the best way to farm mm -hmm. so they they had this bl black plastic strips that would go under the vine keep the weeds out and I think it was used mainly in nurseries like mass nurseries back then and it was I think relatively common for the early uh, grape growers to do it in Oregon as well um, as an organic way to not have weeds because they didn't have the brawn cultivators that we have now and the other mechanical devices nor even if they did have them I don't think we would have had the money for it regardless so we had this black plastic strips and uh, they were terrible so they broke down and then my brothers and I, our job uh, was to collect, pick up all the black plastic and then uh, throw it away or recycle it. I don't know what my parents did. But we didn't like, we did certainly didn't like it. I mean, we were kids and, um, you know, we other things we probably would have rather done. But, um, we were kind of, uh, you know, this is what we had to do, and uh, even if we didn't like it. And then we were spreading uh, mulch, hay, uh, as mulch under the rows, uh, and like I said, suckering and uh, weeding. Those were kind of our jobs <laughs> when we were really young. And um, I didn't really love working in in um, in the vineyard until much much later um, where it kind of dawned on me how um, special it was and how amazing of a opportunity that we have uh, we <coughs> worked Harvest, you know, we helped out around Beaufort when we were young. Um, all three of us and my mom and my grandma in the very early years. And, um, and then in high school we started working for other growers locally. 
um, during harvest. So Brickhouse, Doug Tennell was really uh, awesome to uh, be willing to take on, you know, high school boys that probably had, you know, marginal uh, quality work compared to, you know, what his normal uh, team was. But uh, he let us uh, work with him and he trained us a lot. He spent a lot of time, you know, we were running the tractors spraying um, organic sprays for Doug um, and then doing compost projects and other things around the farm, topping occasionally. Um, and uh, so that was really nice. And then Christum, we also, I, I was able to work a harvest um, at Christum um, with uh, Steve Dorner and uh, Paul Gary was still there um, very regularly. And Tommy um, was, was there with us as well. And then um, from there, uh, right after high school, Newburgh High School. Um, I went to Oregon State University and was not really settled on a on a degree. And my dad recommended that I go to work abroad, and uh, so he talked to Parker, and uh, Parker had a friend, Eric Solomon, uh, who's an importer. Uh, Spanish wines and um, my brothers and I had marginal Spanish capabilities so um, and maybe the idea that going out of the country would be good for us my dad pushed us a little thought it would be good he didn't have to push too hard it sounded like a good opportunity and we went to uh, or I went first to Rioja um, and worked for Artadi uh, in between uh, summer break, you know, in between mm -hmm. school. Mm -hmm. And um, so <clears throat> didn't really know what to expect. Uh, was very nervous, um, not having traveled much uh, in, you know, my early years prior to this. Never been out of the country. And it was. Uh, uh, flying over there alone and you know Newburgh isn't necessarily um, a uh, diverse area and culturally it was pretty I would say sheltered so I was nervous flying over uh, practicing my Spanish the full way there not knowing how much Spanish or English you know I, I would be able to communicate uh, well and uh, I got there, and uh, the owner of Artadi, Juan Carlos, um, and his full family uh, picked, picked me up from the, the airport, took me to LaGuardia, which is uh, their village, which is a medieval village that's within uh, Old Castle. And so they live within the walls of this place, and there's something like 500 inhabitants and probably 20 bars slash restaurants within it 
an incredible place with a ton of history and incredible food and these very hospitable, uh, generous people, the uh, Juan Carlos and his family. And the first night we arrived and we, he took us to a restaurant outside. Um, we dined inside the castle walls, but it was outside air. And um, he brought uh, some, some wines with him and one of them was uh, a wine. I think that moment had kind of made, dawned on me that I wanted to be in the wine business. And it, it was his wine that uh, his, uh, his father planted the vineyard, um, Vigne, Vignel Pisson. And it was a 1995 vintage, which was a special year for Spain. Very good growing season. And uh, an amazing wine. Um, you know, my park, my uncle uh, Parker had rated it really well, and I think Juan Carlos was very proud of it. You know that oh, this was rated 99 points or something like that. And um, I tasted the wine, and it was like the most amazing. Um, Camaro or hybrid of a great Burgundy and um, a Bordeaux and that it had the floral dried herbs high tone notes of uh, of a great great Burgundy um, but it had the depth and palate concentration of a, of a really great Bordeaux and I was I was blown away by the wine and also Probably, you know, the moment, the culture difference, the really delicious food, roasted lamb, um, which is really common in, um, that's Basque country. Mm -hmm. So they have a lot of lamb and um, that's, you know, one of their best cuisines. Um, and I think that moment kind of uh, propelled me and excited me. Um, uh, and I, you know, it was a burning thing in my, in my memory. Um, and probably what pushed me uh, to, for the first time, go outside of, you know, it being just life on the vineyard and the farm to something where I really appreciated um, to a deeper level. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, from that vintage, we had great fun with the family, uh, drinking a lot. He had an amazing cellar and uh, had a lot of inspiring wines over that summer. And uh, then went back for a second vintage the following summer, that time with uh, my brother Nathan, the one that's uh, working in engineering. Mm -hmm. Um, another great experience, and then the third summer uh, to Prerot and uh, Chlorasmus, uh, Daphne, Glorian, and Eric's winery uh, on a cliff, vineyard, old Grenache. Uh, we were a freak show of a team. We, uh, you know, very funny team. So it was. Uh, Myself, Nathan, 
um, the cellar master or winemaker, co-winemaker, I think Daphne's the winemaker, but Esther, uh, who is a Spaniard, but kind of Rastafarian-like character. Um, and uh, we had on the team also, uh, the harvest team, a pair of um, lesbian contortionists that worked in circus and they were somehow connected with Esther and uh, wanted to work the harvest. And then we had a lawyer from Barcelona that was a lover of their wines and a wine collector, but a uh, funny guy because every time the uh, the heat would get over roughly 90 degrees, he would take his shirt off and his pants off and he would harvest in his underwear. And we had a dog named Milu with an underbite and he was a bipolar dog. I mean, really demented dog. The dog would switch within a five minute span would randomly bite Nathan and I. Um, and then Daphne, uh, the owner and winemaker. And again, drank a lot of great wine, ate fantastic food and kind of cemented the culture and the love for the product more so. I think it was just hard to fall in love with uh, the product as much when you're so close to it um, growing up. Mm -hmm and it took a little bit of distancing to understand and um, just learn it and uh, change the perspective a little bit. Okay. Um, so you mentioned that your, your dad had kind of encouraged you uh, to, to do these kind of trips early on. Did you, did you feel pressure to stay in the family business? No, no, not at all. They were, um, both of my parents were very um, uh, laissez-faire on, you know, the sense that you guys can do whatever you want. This is what we do. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, they wanted us to work in the vineyard when we were very young just to try to instill a work ethic, um, but not... Not ever pushing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So after you, you're you've gone through you're in Oregon State. You've done these kind of abroad experiences that are kind of cementing this idea in your head. That this is what you want to do. So what's your next step after after college? Well, and then during college, I guess I came back after the first uh, vintage and um, did enology and viticulture at Oregon State. So both Mikey and I um, graduated. Um, in that program and um, then immediately following graduation uh, I took a job with uh, Fisher Vineyards in um, Sonoma. Uh, the wineries in Sonoma they have vineyards both in Sonoma and Napa and uh, worked uh, with uh, with the Fisher family uh, making uh, Cabernet uh, varietals and uh, those blends 
uh, had a great time uh, working with them and uh, you know really have to thank the Fisher family a lot for um, allowing me to work uh, for them because I was out of college I had experience but it it was never you know my responsibility and um, they really gave me a chance and um, Whitney uh, Fisher uh, worked side by side with me she was the winemaker um, and Aaron Pott the consulting winemaker was a lot of fun to work with uh, all, never a dull moment with him and um, you know, there was a lot of common thread between the Fisher philosophy and um, these other great wineries that I worked with. So it felt like a natural um, place to be in transition. Um, and they were a family, completely family-run operation. I mean, there were very few non-Fisher uh, employees. Um, and uh, and so it was kind of fun to see the family dynamic uh, of of them, and uh, and and work with them. Mm -hmm. I stayed with them for two vintages, and then um, I randomly got introduced and started working uh, for a consultant uh, in Napa named Denny uh, Malbec and Maybrit, his wife. Um, and I met them from tasting. Uh, I had wanted to taste at Cap Shandy Winery because I had read about them in the Wine Advocate and um, and read, you know, these rave reviews. And so I asked uh, Parker if he uh, knew uh, the Cap Shandies and could help me get a tasting because they're not uh, the easiest to uh, to visit with and so he lined up a tasting and I tasted with Lou Cap Shandy uh, the proprietor um, and tasted through a fabulous lineup of wines uh, with Lou who Lou is another huge personality in the industry I have not met many people as intense and focused as Lou. Um, you know, he's crazy passionate about wine, a huge collector, and uh, pushes everybody on his staff to uh, to make something that's really notable, remarkable wine. So it was uh, an intense tasting with Lou. Uh, I feel like Lou was evaluating my every every reaction to his wines and I loved the wines and we got along and he then asked Denny if Denny would interview me uh, to work on the team because Denny consulted for Lou and um, so met Denny and Denny was looking for somebody to work under them um, for a while, uh, but he was took a very um, slow approach, old school approach. So an interview via dinner with Denny, um, dinner once a week or once every two weeks for about four months, I would say. 
where he would open insane wines because he was second generation Chateau Latour and uh, he oh, second no he's third generation Chateau Latour was born on the property and um, so he had amassed an insane collection of Bordeaux first growth and second third growth etc not that they only drank those they definitely drank everything um, and would share them, loved to share them because I was excited about tasting them. And so we would, these interviews would um, drink um, old Bordeaux from 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, and eventually Denny and Maybrit, um felt comfortable with me and they said, okay, you're on the team. So I got to work with Cap Shandy and Blanquier Estate, um, and a number of Denny's other clients. I'd say most of the focus was um, was with those two, especially with Blanquier. Uh, for me, Denny uh, spent a lot of time on both of those, and I think uh, wanted my help there at Blanquier. And um, those were formative experiences for sure. Um, Napa is really intense and everything is precise and uh, hyper-professional, much different from the Willamette Valley where it's a little more raw, rustic. Um, there isn't the uh, investment level, um, not quite as much history as Napa. Uh, you know, everything's a little just rougher around the edges, which you know, it, it's nice that there's the distinction between the two. Mm -hmm. uh, I, love, I love their own properties of each. Um, but it, certainly a lot of fun um, and great learning under Denny and Maybrit and the proprietors of the, those estates in Napa. And um, from, from Napa, um, uh, I ended up back home, and that was uh, from uh, Mark Roy and Robert Roy and my dad saying, hey, you know, would you guys be interested in uh, starting a new venture? And I said, yeah, I'm definitely interested uh, in Oregon uh, if we can find the right property. And so... <clears throat> I, uh, it was, uh, I think it was September, I flew up for a weekend, um, and we were slow, there wasn't a uh, crush going. Flew up uh, to look at land, and we had an appointment to go look at um, a piece of land, a vineyard in Yola Hills. Uh, it was the witness tree property and uh, we were with uh, Peter Bowman and uh, the agent and um, we got the call just as we were leaving Dundee headed for Yola Hills from uh, the uh, Trunk uh, family well, Peter got the call saying that they were interested in selling a property on Warden Hill Road and um, it wasn't going to be an active listing, it was a pocket 
sale and um, wondering if he if Peter had anybody interested Peter hung up the phone and said hey you know something potentially available um, here on in Dundee in Warden Hill and so I quickly told this guys like I love Dundee I like the 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 proximity I like that hill why don't we not go to witness tree cancel the appointment and look at this and um, they uh, they turned the van around and we came up here it was rainy and uh, there was a, a hazelnut or filbert orchard and I walked out into it and instantaneously knew that it was uh, the property and we should immediately jump on it and um, it was a great great opportunity so we did we um, rallied everybody together and uh, we had an offer in that day it was uh, by today's standards even though it was only uh, seven well it was like eight years ago it was a incredible value the price was very very low for what it is it's a 21 acre property um, right on Warden Hill um, prime plantable southeast panel um, 300 feet to 500 foot elevation and um, had all the attributes that we that excited me and um, so we got we got uh, the offer in and um, we started to uh, remove the hazelnut orchard, which was a 35-year-old orchard. And uh, I, we hired my college friend, uh, Ben Milieu, to, um, to do the job, and Aaron Dominguez, who um, is now working with my dad uh, at Sequitur and Beaufrere. Um, and uh, they did the excavation. Uh, so Ben's family had an excavation company. Um, you know, they, they had given a really good price for doing the work, and I liked working with friends. And uh, so, you know, it was their first uh, orchard, you know, transformation into a vineyard. Um, those guys worked like crazy to get it done. Um, you know, we had a lot of fun as well doing it. Um, some arguments for sure. Working with friends, not always easy. Um, but uh, made it happen and, um, and planted the vineyard then in 2013. So we closed on the property in 2012, I think around November and then ordered the vines and um, got everything together and were able to plant uh, in the spring of 13. So it was a really, really fast turnaround. Um, planted it to Pomard and, uh, and Vadensville and Dijon clones. So there's a big spread. There's about nine or 10 clones of Pinot and uh, two clones of Chardonnay. Um, and farm it organic from the start. 
uh, something that I think is important. You mentioned when, when you saw it, uh, you knew right away, and you talked about some of the aspects that it had to it. Was there anything else about it that kind of struck you as, as special or, or why, why it seemed like the right place, the perfect place? Yeah, I think it was always kind of um, aware to me that we wouldn't do the project unless it had both a phenomenal terroir opportunity to make distinctive wine, but also it needed to have um, the uh, possible for a business development. Um, everything is so expensive now that we realized if if we wanted to make this work, we would need to have exposure to visitors. And so Warden Hill was very, very attractive because it had, number one, most importantly, a great terroir. Uh, but secondly, um, many, many visitors. I mean, I think Warden Hill and Brayman Orchard Road um, are arguably the highest trafficked um, wine tourism roads so it needed to have both and there's not many properties that were on the market or come available on Warden Hill um, and so we had to jump on it and fast because we knew it would it would go fast um, but the property just had a really great energy to it you know you just uh, when you're on it the view is inspiring and and um, you know, the ability to, the gift to be able to farm this and develop it was extremely exciting. Tell me about the, backing up just a moment here, the, the actual, the kind of, the, the, the idea for the project. Obviously you mentioned your dad involved and the Roy family. Tell me about that, how, what, what the plan was and why they were even looking for a property in the first place. Well, I think Mark and myself weren't working in Beaufrere, um, and we both were heavily into wine. Mark more on a consumer basis, um, but has had the interest embedded by his dad, um, and myself, you know, doing the same thing, being a winemaker, um, and my dad is a winemaker, um, and probably I'm stubborn and he's stubborn you know just wouldn't have worked for me to be a winemaker at Beaufrere um, it seemed like a natural uh, thing to well let's start another uh, project with the same principles same guiding principles of really making the wine in the vineyard using a great terroir um, and not manipulating it in the cellar. And Mark was gung-ho about the opportunity. Um, and so Robert, Roy, and Mark, uh, and myself, we got the land. And then uh, in order to fund it and to finance everything, um, we did a partnership with um, a big group of uh, friends and contacts of the Roy family in Montreal. Um, so everybody threw in a fixed amount of money. There were around, um, I think, 20-something 20, 20 shares, uh, but more people than that. I think there are maybe 30 people 
but 20 shares. And everybody put in uh, their amount of money. Um, the Roy's and myself would manage it with Alain Plamadon, who is, uh, had worked for the Roy's for a long time um, and had a founding role in, in the company on the finance and business structure management end. Um, so Alain had uh, moved his family out here uh, from I guess it was 2015 until uh, early 2020. He was here managing everything with me. He just moved his family back to Montreal, back home. Um, but that was kind of the structure and how everybody got together and made it work. It took a bunch of people because everything's so expensive now. Mm -hmm. um, I think this property spurred us to invest more than originally was the plan. Because we thought we should invest in something, the the building that would um, allow uh, and draw more customers, uh, and build something really special that would allow people to really love and get into the wine, and something that would be a draw. So. We, uh, we invested certainly more than we were originally uh, targeting to in the winery and the hospitality. Um, but uh, we're, we're really happy that we did. I want to back up for a second too. There's a there's kind of a point along the way that I meant to ask. Uh, you talked about kind of cementing this idea that you wanted to be in wine pretty early on when you're, when you're in college. At what point did it become Production was it always production? Were there other parts of the industry that, that intrigued you, or did, was winemaker kind of what you wanted to be all along? No, it was always production. I never um, wanted to, um, you know, or never had the dream of, you know, sales side or something like that. I, I like the, I love wine and it excites me, and and the production of it, I think, was always the, the focus, for me. The personalities that are in the business, uh, co-workers, and uh, it's just—it's really a lot of fun. So once you once you had the property, you mentioned uh, you, you turned it around quickly, you got the vineyard planted quickly. Uh, tell me about sort of uh, getting things off the ground. What what did you need to install uh, to get things rolling? And, and and tell me about kind of the first couple of years of of the property. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> It was definitely uh, very time constrained. Um, I think the uh, the partners wanted uh, to get the vineyard planted and, and get the winery built in a very, very quick time frame to be able to open and start selling the wine. Um, so uh, it was everything from scratch um, and finding you know the the right uh, the right people to work with in the vineyard um, so we ended up with uh, the uh, Miguel Lopez's uh, family uh, relatives which uh, the Lopez's um, had a long history with Beaufort um, his 
father, Santiago, was one of the original uh, vineyard crew boss, crew managers, vineyard managers of Beaufort. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the cousins and uh, family of them uh, were really the OG uh, vineyard guys at Beaufort. So that, um, they planted the vineyard with us and um, farmed it. And um, Miguel's family is still uh, farming Iron Filbert um, with us. And uh, so we're fortunate to, to have those guys uh, part of the team. And um, then to the architecture, we had to find you know, a good architect. So we went with a local guy, Stephen Lapp, Waterleaf. Um, took a lot of inspiration from the hospitality programs in Napa, though, um, being a lot of the Howard Backen architecture down there. Um, <clears throat> so we flew down and had visited uh, Harlan Estate and Promontory, Screaming Eagle, and um, you know a lot of these really just amazingly beautiful places um, that had seemingly endless budgets. And we got inspired by them and took design cues from Howard's work. And then Stephen Lapp took his fingerprint and applied it to those uh, concepts. And we're really happy. We think it's a timeless space and something that uh, it's an escape a little bit. Um, still with a relative northwest feel, but it's an escape and people can relax and enjoy the wine and each other. And I think that's important. Mm -hmm. What about the winery part itself? What, what were you looking for out of a winery space? Uh, just flexible, open space. Um, you know, uh, it's a big rectangle. Uh, having good heating and cooling was important, um, and plenty of space. So we modeled a lot of it actu actually, I would say, after Blanquier uh, Estate in Napa. There's a, certainly a more refined and, um, you know, uh, quite an amazing space. Um, but we, we applied the concept of, of what they had and the floor, rough floor plan. Um, and enough space for a long sorting line. So we have, I think it's 60 feet. No, it's more than 60 feet. It's probably 70 feet of sorting line. So if we want to have 20 people on the sorting line, we can do that. So we'll sort um, whole cluster, and then we'll sort individual berries um, in addition to the sorting in the vineyard. So the fruit's really um, just berries or berries with stems if we're doing some whole cluster. Um, was an important part of the production to me. Um, but yeah, it's a simple winery. Uh, there's nothing too uh, intricate. We're not gravity flow. I think gravity flow is nice, but uh, with the modern um, uh, technology, it's not necessary. You can make just as good of wine 
we have these um, pumps, Waukesha pumps, that uh, are steel lobed and run at an insanely slow rate with no oxygen. Um, they're very, very gentle on the wine and very clean. I thought, you don't really need gravity. It's not, you know, everybody is so caught up on it, but gravity location wineries are difficult to work in because they have multiple levels. So your investment in the building is more and then your um, efficiency is sometimes lower because you have to drive the forklifts from multiple levels. You have stairways or elevators and um, I just felt like these Waukesha pumps, they're so gentle and slow on the wine. Uh, there's no reason for it, so um, so we went uh, went that route. You, talk, you mentioned uh, farming organically from the start is something that was important to you. Tell me about kind of coming to that conclusion and, and why organic farming was important. Um, we were lucky to taste great, great wines um, from all over the world and, and meet the proprietors and meet the vineyard um, the vineyard team and the, and the winemaking team and every single winery um, that I really admired um, had the exact same um, approach and it was organic or biodynamic farming and uh, they were native ferments and um, you know that it was echoed over and over again and and it was very evident from to me that 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 was our direction um. you mentioned while we were before the interview the the kind of um, you base some things on on Beaufrere and, and kind of sort mm -hmm. of, sort of, sort of borrow the model how does it differentiate from the Beaufrere what what's different about here than, than Beaufrere um, really the only difference in the wine making significant difference is um, the young vines. I mean we we planted in uh, 2013 and 2014 and Beaufrere planted you know starting in 86 and then multiple plantings on. Uh, so younger vines um, <coughs> Different uh, ABA, uh, volcanic soil here, and at our Carlton site, um, we're uh, sedimentary with a mix of a little bit of volcanic. Mm -hmm. um, so very, very different terroirs. Um, on the winemaking side, it's hyper similar. Um, we do more sorting than Beaufrere in the in the cellar. My dad thinks that we're uh, too clean on our sorting. Um, you know, he thinks that uh, some of the elements that come in from the uh, vineyard should be part of the wine. I like to get all the stems, uh, leaves, and as many uh, bugs out, as many um, jacks, uh, if, you know, we're not doing whole cluster out as I can and have just perfect berries, nothing else. Uh, he thinks there's some complexity 
um, to the other material that can make it in. Not in large amounts, I mean, they still sort, but ours is just cleaner. Mm -hmm. um, so our sorting line is different from them. Um, and I think stylistically changes the wine a little bit. We also have more juice that runs off of our line than Beaufrere's, so that changes the um, skin to juice ratio. And I think maybe it gives us a little more color um, because of the sorting line. But in the fermentation, it's exactly the same. I mean, we cold soak for about the same amount of time. We um, uh, pump over uh, roughly the same amount, maybe a little less than them. We'll do one pump over per day per tank, sometimes two. Um, same amount of time on skins. <clears throat> Pretty much the same pressing. They will age the free run and the press together, mm -hmm. and I separate the free run and the press, and then um, we'll only blend them based on the final taste. They like to integrate those mm -hmm. two early on. Uh, we age the same amount of time. They use a little bit more new wood. I'm now close to 0% new wood. We just use neutral. Mm. Um, I like the rawness of it. Um, I think for the young vines still figuring out the vineyard, um, it allows me to understand the vines um, better um, without the makeup. <laughs> and later when the vines are a little bit older and I know block by block better, we might integrate a little bit of um, new wood um, on the wines. <laughs> And um, bottling on fine unfiltered, it's the same. So most of the production's really, really similar. Um, they farm it biodynamically over there, and I'm organic. Um, I don't believe in biodynamics right now. Maybe later I will. Um, to me, it's more of a religion than a... Um, uh, farming system that I can directly correlate to uh, change in the wine. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of great producers that certainly use BD and it helps them to make better wine. I just don't feel like it would, at this point in my winemaking, uh, have me create better wines. Uh, I'm curious about developing uh, your winemaking philosophy and style. We're coming from someone with your, like your dad with very strong opinions on these kinds of things, and uh, starting a project like this and, and making your own tweaks to it, was it is it difficult to to kind of implement what you want to implement? Is it difficult to break away maybe from the the kind of tried and true? Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly my palate has evolved over time, and where I'm tasting a lot and and what I'm tasting and who I'm around. Um, you know, I've always loved Great Burgundy. I've always loved Bordeaux. Um, and then I moved to Napa and um, I got, you know, enthralled with uh, the wines of Napa and the history of Napa. And um, 
so that impacted my style and perspective quite a bit. When I first moved back to Oregon, um, you know, I was unsure of exactly where my style would be. And I think I was definitely more um, on a ripe end of the spectrum in the early vintages of Domain Roy. Um, maybe not in 2013. I would have liked to make a riper wine in 2013, um, but the vintage was uh, laden with uh, heavy botrytis and um, um, huge disease pressure, so we had to pick early and we made super feminine wines, but it wasn't necessarily by my choice. I would have harvested later with uh, more flavor and more power behind the wine. 14 was warm, and I think my wines were warm and, um, uh, and large and in your face, pretty fruit driven. I love the vintage, and I, even to this day, I, I still love it. Um, 15, the first vintage of Iron Filbert Estate. So 13 and 14, we were purchasing fruit. 15 was the first of the estate, and it was a heat spike year um, with young vines on a south-facing property, Iron Filbert, and uh, so the wines were hyper-ripe, um, super unctuous, I mean, they were like Napa, and I thought at the time, man, I hit a home run, it's uh, phenomenal. The critical review was high, and so it was good from a standpoint of, you know, getting the wines out, coming out with a good support from the critics was nice. But looking back on the wine, I'm not sure that it will age as well as I would like, mm -hmm. um, the 15 vintage. Um, and I've, every year from 15 on, I've dialed it back and gone more classical. Um, less wood and um, earlier harvest and uh, uh, fewer pump overs, fewer punch downs. Um, I think it was just the transition, you know, from making um, uh, Porto varietals and, and drinking and loving the texture uh, and the depth and the power of that varietal mm -hmm. to better understanding Pinot and Oregon Pinot. Um, so I um, immediately started putting more restraint and now um, I would say I'm on the more extreme side of uh, the pendulum for um, Oregon Pinot and that we we harvest um, our wines uh, with the potential alcohol of you know we end up around 12 and a half to 13 percent maximum uh, alcohols on on the Pinots um, and the Chardonnays are 12 percent to 12.8 so we're <laughs> you know maybe I'll change as as I um, go through this all and understand our terroir better. But 
Um, my big thing with dialing the wines back is I've found with lower alcohol, um, the wines in my mind can express the terroir, they express organ clearer because the alcohol isn't uh, in the finish, it's not covering up the uh, flavor of the fruit or the minerality of the wine. When the finish comes, we're feeling the texture of the tannin, the fruit, the ripe fruit, and uh, or floral, um, and the mineral, not the alcohol. Mm -hmm. And it also allows the wines to um, have a wider ideal serving temperature. So when a wine is at 14 and up percent, the ideal temperature has to be much lower. In my mind, it has to be between 55 and let's say 65 so that the, the wine isn't flashy and hiding uh, uh, the, the fruit and the identity of the site. Um, so we have alcohols around 12 and a half or 13 and you can serve them from you know 55 degrees all the way up to room temperature plus and you still get the just the fruit in the terroir and the mineral not the alcohol and that's I think that's fantastic um, and it's the style that I like to to drink now um, so that, you know, was how that was impacted. You, you talked about your site a couple of times and about still still learning it. Uh, tell me about how you learn a site that's the, as you're kind of growing up with it and, and at what point you'll feel comfortable kind of having a map in your head of where of what the site looks like and, and where the blocks are that you're excited about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the site... You know, it's just been trial and error and um, making wine um, vintage in and vintage out and seeing where the best wines are coming from. And what we're seeing is our um, center of the vineyard, uh, center of the slope is providing um, the most distinctive wines. Um, and that's normally going towards uh, this wine, the Iron Filbert. And um, the wines in the bottom of the hill are flashier. They have uh, brighter fruit. Um, they're less timeless. Um, they're more of a contemporary expression. Um, and then the top of the hill, um, still figuring out block one we call it. Um, the Pinot Noir was planted a year later because it was um, where we were um, a landing zone and kind of uh, area for uh, the job shack when the construction was happening. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a great block I think. I think it could be as good as um, block two. It's Pomard and Vadensville. And then on the 
north uh, east side we've got our Chardonnay and we did that because we wanted the proximity kitty corner to Cameron and we really look up to their uh, Colo Electric Chardonnay and the soil types are most similar um, on our property to Cameron in that corner so we thought well that makes a lot of sense there's a little bit more minerality rockiness in that corner and Chardonnay being a vigorous um, grower it makes sense to plant it in the rock to take the vigor back a little bit um, it's just figuring out on this site we have some blocks that have a little bit of reduction and so pairing that in the right fermenter with the right temperatures of ferment and um, co-fermenting within uh, certain clones has worked and others haven't. Um, so it's just, uh, you know, little by little, one vintage at a time, we learn a couple things and then adapt. Um, you know, you always have the insurance though because we're the, the blocks are generally fermenting uh, separately or fermenting separately from each other and then barrel aged separately from each other. So we can then choose the barrels, um, the best barrels um, for the iron filbert. Um, and then uh, the more contemporary style is going into the incline level wine. And then um, the very early drinking wines that maybe don't have the depth to age for a long time go into our Willamette Valley blend. So it's a blend of the two estates. And um, it seems to be working well. We make wines true to the vintage, to the sites, um, and to Oregon, soulful Oregon wines. That's kind of really, really important. I don't want to be Burgundy um, or California. Um, we want to be Oregon. Mm -hmm. I think that's incredibly important. Um, and for me, Oregon means having, or what Oregon is, is a little bit less fruit than Napa, um, a little bit more fruit than Burgundy, um, and uh, kind of that middle freshness level too. They're not so austere as young Burgundies can be, um, but they're not as quite maybe open as um, some of the uh, California Pinot Noirs on release. Not to say that, you know, there aren't outliers in those areas, and I very much respect the wines from both of those places. It's just about the identity. Um, and I, I see the texture of Oregon being really in between those two as well. The, the tannins, um, they're not quite as austere, I think, in general mm -hmm. as some Burgundy and when they're young. And they're maybe not quite as open as some of the Sonoma wines when they're mm -hmm. young. But. You'd mentioned that part of what came with this property was the need to kind of have a more, more of a hospitality program. Maybe you were anticipating more of a, a forward-facing. I'm curious in, in, in your role as winemaker, tell me about sort of connecting with, with guests and kind of how you want to speak about the wines or, or present the wines to, to your customers. 
Yeah. Um, we took a lot of the hospitality ideals from what I saw in Napa um, because it's quite refined and um, beautiful there. Um, and we applied that here. Um, so we wanted to have a lot of space in the hospitality. We wanted it to be um, private enough feeling where um, it wasn't, you know, a loud setting. Um, it was a place where people could really go down and understand the wines and focus on them, talk to the um, winery host individually, um, tour the winery production area. So that's why the buildings are, it's one building, production uh, below ground and the hospitality above. So we'll take the guests down to walk the cellar and see the barrel room and show them the equipment and show them, you know, everything. Mm -hmm. We walk them out into the vineyard so they connect more mm -hmm. with um, to what we're doing. Um, and I think it's worked really, really well. We've certainly adapted from what my original thought of how it would operate. I thought we could be open only by appointment um, and be really serious and have uh, you know the consumer uh, really lock in on the wine. And I think the reality is is that a lot of consumers um, they want to come and uh, they just want to relax and enjoy the wine, but not overly analyze it you know I think I was a little bit uh, um, disconnect from what the consumer really wanted in Oregon you know I placed too much or too much of my experience and thought was on around these um, very unique Napa producers like you know, Blanquier or Cap Shandy or Harlan and Promontory and uh, in that those are 100% by appointment. There's normally one person on the property and you're with your host the full time and you talk about the wine and you really, you're completely enveloped. Where here, there's definitely uh, the weekend warriors coming out here from Portland. Um, and they're here to hang out with their friends, and the wine is part of the equation, but it's certainly not the focal equation. So we have a lot of those visitors, and I've adapted to, you know, just understand they're greatly welcome to, and uh, maybe they'll grow into taking the wine more seriously. Um, but it's part of the evolution of Oregon wine. Um, you know, I think Oregon consumer there's certainly hardcore collectors and my dad has a lot of that base and wine fanatics um, but there's also a large growing population of um, uh, people that are coming out to enjoy the view architecture wine and their friends mm -hmm. and food and it's less focused on just the wine um, so our space has been versatile enough to 
post um, both folks, the collectors and people that are here just to take it easy and have fun with their friends. Um, and I hadn't planned it. I didn't think that it was going to be exactly like that. But I'm happy that it's working. What about your role in that specifically? Do you have a lot of interaction? Um, I don't host that many people. I, um, I try to uh, be as connected as I can with uh, the customers. I'm not super social, so I, um, if there's people that I really love and I align with their personalities, then I'm incredibly social. If I don't like uh, somebody that I'm hosting, then I'm in and out very, very quickly, and I, I just, you know, they probably don't want to talk to me as much as I don't want to talk to them. Um, and, you know, go back to the vineyard or the cellar or something else. But, um, so it's a, it's a bit mixed. I think my dad's better at um, hosting and connecting with the wider style of, or type of people. Uh, he's, he's really good with people. Uh, I don't think that I'm uh, the same in that in that sense. I'm just would rather hermit away if I have the chance to to do that. You talked about the the formation of this and, and, the, and the the amount of people invested into it. I'm I'm curious if that does that complicate things for you having that many voices. Uh, at what point do you do you have decisions to make versus consensus to build? Well, there's the the guys that partnered are friends of the Roy's, and um, they're wine lovers, and they're not from the wine business. Um, they have put in some money, and they don't have an active management. Um, they more wanted to invest in something that they can drink and enjoy. Um, and come and visit when they're not um, busy with their businesses in in um, Canada. Um, so the management's really um, Mark Roy um, at this point uh, with Mark Pauline, one of the partners that's more involved, Alain Plamondome, uh, myself. Um, and so the, the other guys are just respecting that core's decision. And so no, it doesn't, it's been really smooth. I mean, of course there's been disagreements on direction, but nothing that it hasn't been manageable. And there's not so many voices that it's, you know, diluting the core. Mm -hmm. And the core has always been the same for all the people managing. That, you know, make the best wine possible. That's that's really it. That's the only message that everybody has been focused on. I'm also curious. Obviously, we've talked about your family quite a bit. Obviously, your your kind of Oregon wine royalty. Is there is there anything that comes with being a Netzel in the Oregon wine industry? That's is it <laughs> po positive? Is it negative? Is there is there both? I 
think that uh, the Etzel family has a reputation of being, um, well, one of my friends put it really well. He said, you know, you guys are like the most refined rednecks we've ever met. <laughs> and rednecks in the sense only of just people that are out, you know, shooting guns, riding motorcycles, uh, working, driving tractors, working the field, um, speak our mind very raw and off the cuff. My dad's certainly very off the cuff. Um, not redneck in the sense of, you know, the, the negative attributes of a redneck. People think of, you know, oh, Confederate or no, that's not us at all. We're not, uh, you know, um, we have friends of any race and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So just wanted to define uh, our redneck is just a uh, someone that grew up on our farm. We're not uh, dressed well. We're um, kind of... Uh, not super well education, educated. Uh, we have base education, but we're, you know, have fun in the forest and riding the motorcycles. And, you know, we make, we grew up in high school and middle school. My dad taught us how to make bombs, you know. So we were playing with dynamite and potassium perchlorate, aluminum powder. Um, you know, blowing things up and riding motorcycles, dirt bikes on the streets to go visit our friends. I mean, it was Wild West, more Wild West than raw. And um, so maybe that's slightly our reputation. Um, and then, you know, from people that know us personally. And then I think, you know, on the wine side, I think just um, there's an expectation that, you know, we carry on making uh, delicious wines and, um, and uh, I think that's about the summary of <laughs> us. It's a pretty excellent summary. Yeah. Does it, is it a lot to live up to? Like the, the reputation of Beau Frere, is that a lot to try to aspire to? Uh, I haven't really thought about it in that way much. Um, it's just been wine and producing great wine has been more of an internal thing that I love and creating it uh, has driven me not, uh, you know, trying to match uh, what's been done by my dad and my brother. Um, so it, there, it doesn't feel like there's really pressure. I mean. So obviously you have a pretty unique perspective on the industry, having really grown up in it as it was as it was growing up. Mm -hmm. What are the what are the? I'm curious. Uh, kind of you, you you left it, you came back. What did, what were the differences when you when you came back to start Domain Roy from kind of your memories of growing up in the wine industry and and what has changed from then to now? Like, what are, the, what are kind of the milestone changes for you that you've noticed uh, growing up in the industry? Um, just that it's gone from a, um, 
very mom and pop um, dominated uh, well all the owners are very mom and pop back in the day mm -hmm. and now um, there are producers that uh, from Burgundy from uh, California um, people from all over are now here and um, the investment has gone up significantly um, the expertise has gone up um, a lot um, I think you know people uh, because of the competition and the number of producers now um, there are many uh, wineries that are focused on a refined hospitality back then you didn't have that it was just you taste in the cellar or you taste in the house mm. and we didn't have the number of visitors so you know it was small and quaint and um, uh, Oregon is definitely has now a mix of mom and pop and uh, you know big investment out big outside investment um, I think Oregon is doing a good job at maintaining uh, their identity though um, so it's uh, it's uh, some positive with some negative I mean certainly the big producers uh, take away a little bit of the culture of Oregon but they also bring the exposure uh, national exposure and beyond which is uh, necessary for for growth um, but uh, what about the, the collaboration obviously it's what we hear always hear about Oregon wine as a, a collaborative place and a place that supports as it's grown and as the outside investment has has grown has that changed at all in your mind not in my world I mean it we're still a tiny producer and I surround myself with uh, tiny producers. I'm not, I don't interact with the big guys um, at all and uh, I don't really have much interest in them. Um, but among our peers and um, it's extremely helpful. Um, borrowing equipment and talking about how we make wine or how we grow grapes. Um, yeah, we help out as much as we can, and it's it's really really nice. Uh, obviously, we're we're talking to you in the in uh, now August of 2020, in the middle of uh, the COVID pandemic. Uh, I'm curious how the pandemic has affected sort of your wine life uh, and and wor and work here at Domain Roy, and and maybe what you kind of foresee for the uh, for the for the near future while we're still dealing with it. Yeah, it's um, definitely been challenging, um, hospitality-wise, um, and you know I think just the added stress of the current uh, combination of COVID with um, political uh, stress has everybody kind of on edge and um, uh, challenged and trying to find solutions. And I think what I notice is uh, it brings out the true 
personality and identity of a person during these challenging times. And um, that's kind of refreshing in its own light to see the rawness that it brings out of people, whether, you know, good or bad. Um, you know, we're adapting and uh, we uh, were able to adapt on the hospitality end, fortunately, because we have so much space. Um, we can separate and still operate, keep the doors open. We weren't terribly impacted by um, the uh, pandemic. Um, I think we're doing better than we have than we've ever done. It's partially because I think I heard around half of the wineries, hospitality programs in the Willamette Valley have shut down. So I think there's fewer wineries open right now. Um, and so we have more customers. And then it's also that we are a new winery and it seems like every year there's a degree of growth just by word of mouth and exposure and that kind of stuff. So. What about as you look ahead for 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 yourself and and for Domain Roy as you grow? Obviously, hopefully coming out of the pandemic at some time soon. What are you what are you seeing in the next five ten years here for for yourself and for the for the winery? Um. Well, related to the pandemic, uh, that's a difficult question. Hmm. Let me think one sec. Related to the pandemic, how will we? You can make it unrelated to the pandemic too. I'm just sort of curious what you see as you look oh. ahead, as you look ahead here. Well, it's just continuing to learn the vines as they go from. I think now they're kind of like teenage uh, equivalent. You know, they're almost in their adult life. Um, very much so, looking to work with the mature vines and refine the wines. And it's not about boosting production, it's about refining them further and further. Um, and uh, refining our winemaking. Um, and just telling the Oregon story, the history of Oregon, we try to tell the guests that are interested and um, um, I think that's kind of our focus, just refining uh, the wines and our story, and that's kind of our, our future. What about, what about as you look ahead for the industry, Oregon wine industry in general, what do you see it looking like over the next, say, let's say decade? Um, well, there's uh, many, many more producers, um, and so I think that, uh, you know, in one way it's a good thing that some of these larger producers are here because they're giving us national exposure and it's bringing more customers to us that's necessary for all these new big and small producers. Um, so there's massive amount of growth right now. Everybody wants to invest. Um, everybody wants a winery. Um, I think with COVID, I think there's maybe even more people that are thinking to move out to wine country from the city. Um, 
you know, people are being able to work distantly and so they say, well, why live in the city? Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of issues right now with, with the city. And so why not get out into wine country? Um, so the, the challenge, I think, is um, for all of these producers, new producers, to uh, find a consumer um, and to uh, be able to make a business out of it. Because for a new producer, it's incredibly difficult to uh, to be able to make a sustainable business. The costs are tremendously high. Um, the margins are not uh, good, um, and. Um, you know, if they're doing it to, for the wrong reason, to make money, um, good luck. It's it's not, not very easy. If they do it because they love wine, and they've got a great terroir, um, then I think they'll make it, and uh, there will always be a, a consumer base that supports and gets behind it. Um, there's definitely a tremendous amount of growth right now in Oregon. Uh, both in the vineyards and the number of wineries, and it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out, especially, you know, related to this short time frame of the COVID pandemic and the political unrest um, with the, you know, the current president and everything. Um, so, yeah, time time will tell. Um, and um, and it'll be very interesting. At what point did you kind of at what point did you kind of recognize that Oregon was becoming a wine industry of note? At what, what point did it be, feel like it was legitimate uh, and uh, recognized? Um, I think I was a little bit skewed because Beaufort had um, good success in. Um, you know, the early 90s or mid 90s, they started to gain significant traction. Uh, and so that's what I was around and I assumed that it was um, kind of a normalcy. Um, I understand that it certainly was a unique um, uh, winery and they gained their success because the product was um, a product of the vineyard, very raw. My dad did a good job making the wine and then of course the exposure that Parker brought was catapulted it into so many people's cellars. Without his exposure we wouldn't have had the attention. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's um, was a kind of a bubble, but the um, overall wine, Oregon wine industry, to me, it seemed like it really caught fire with a huge amount of attention. Um, sometime around 2010 or so, it seemed like the investment from outsiders really catapulted. Um, 
and it hasn't slowed down. Tell me about it. Makes it hard to document as it's exploding like that. Yeah. Um, last question I have for you. We're gonna get a little philosophical. Uh, what's wine's role in society? Uh, to bring people together, uh, to provide uh, beauty, and uh, and to provide uh, a product that. Uh, intoxicates you and um, allows you to further socialize on a different level um, with friends and family um, and uh, just a, a beautiful art like that all right that's all the questions i have for cool. you is there anything i didn't ask that i should have anything we didn't cover here that we should have covered um I a little bit the role the roles that I um, have on um, consulting, so yeah. that's part of my please tell us about that thing um, that is uh, important to me, um, and it's been a lot of fun and helped me develop a lot as a winemaker. So um, working under Denny Mulbeck, I realized the um, amazing. Uh, continuing education that you can get from being uh, a winemaking consultant and I wanted to apply that when I moved back to Oregon because you get an exposure to um, such a broadened number of terroirs mm -hmm. personalities management types um, and everything else in between that it's just so educational that I, I really wanted to do that. And so I've had some, uh, some excellent clients um, uh, that I've been able to work with. Uh, probably the most important one to this date has been uh, Furioso. Mm -hmm. And um, Giorgio, uh, I started with him uh, from the beginning of that project. Um, and uh, when he was traveling back and forth from Washington DC to Oregon trying to find a piece of property, um, I met him through, again, Peter Bowman, the real estate um, agent, uh, introduced us. And Georgia and I got along really well and um, uh, saw eye to eye on a lot of things. Um, and uh, he hired me onto the team and um, started just purchasing fruit until he um, got his estate properties. But um, I convinced him to purchase uh, what was then Crumbled Rock um, because Roy started in Crumbled Rock. Before this building was here, we were Custom Crush leasing the space uh, from Jerry and Julia. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were uh, just making the wine using their space. And met Giorgio. And then um, Jerry and Julia wanted to retire um, and, uh, and sell the property. And it was listed. It was expensive at the time. Um, certainly 
expensive, but for a reason. It's an amazing terroir with a huge amount of history. Um, but I slowly convinced Giorgio uh, to purchase that property. At first, when he heard the price, he said, man, I just, I don't know how I'm gonna make it work. And he joked, well, you only want me to buy that because you just wanna, you don't wanna commute. You just walk across the street. <laughs> And certainly there's a beauty to that. But, I mean, those vines started planting in 83 um, over at Furiosa, so it's old vines. Um, and Pomard and uh, Vadensville and some later, slightly later planted um, Dijon clone. Um, so working with old vines right across the street from the Domain Roy Young Vines um, with a, a similar terroir um, has been incredibly fascinating because the wines are completely different. We make them in a pretty similar manner um, over at Furio, so some slight uh, artistic differentiations. Um, but the old vines are just amazing. They provide a, a depth, uh, a complexity, and a purity that the young vines, you have to work twice as hard to get that. I think you can get it with young vines. We can't get it from the entire vineyard, mm -hmm. but we can get it from a section of, but we really have to work twice as hard. You have to sort more, you have more vineyard work to get the unruly young vine uh, in shape. Um, and then you have to um, declassify more wine to select just the best of the best. Um, with the old vines, they're doing it on their own. They're, um, they're buffered uh, to the vintage and to the elements. Um, the roots are deeper. Um, and, you know, most of that property can make wines uh, at a very, very high level with, with less um, massaging, so mm -hmm. to say. Mm -hmm. uh, and working with Giorgio, who is, um, he's an artist. Um, he's, uh, you know, a wine lover uh, and, a, and a huge character. And the winemaker there, Dominique, a Frenchman, uh, worked in Burgundy so that the whole dynamic has been a huge amount of fun and um, helped to develop me quite a bit um, and broaden the exposure a uh, new client that I have that's a startup um, that I'm really really excited about and will make great wine is um, Dave Jackter he's a car guy Wilsonville Toyota he was uh, kind of famous for founding No Bowl. Um, so you drive through Willamette Valley and you'll see hundreds of cars with a license plate with a bowl and a cross through it. And that's Dave's um, old company. He sold it and has always loved wine and said, this is my next thing that I'm gonna do. So he bought a property on Kingsgrade Road right above Flaneur. Um, and uh, is planting around 16 acres of vines this year. Um, we're making purchased fruit wine right now. 
Um, and uh, really going all in. He's hired uh, the same architect that we used with Roy, building a winery, hospitality, and um, and I think he is a, an example of a masterful marketing guy, and he's a very very good business person and um, and uh, just personality. He gets along with everybody, and. Um, that's been fun to work with him and understand um, what he wants and, mm -hmm. and where that project is going. Mm -hmm. um, those are my two other main focuses. Um, I have a couple small new vineyards that I've planted um, here in Dundee, one at the top of Warden Hill um, that uh, I own with um, Eugene Lebonsky, who's uh, not exactly my brother-in-law or beau-frere. He's, uh, my brother married his sister. Um, and the two of us partnered 50-50 in that vineyard, um, planting Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, heritage blends. So it's, um, cuttings from beau-frere, Marsal selected. So we took the best cuttings, marked them at beau-frere field blended them and planted um, the vineyard Chardonnay and Pinot. Mm -hmm. uh, very high elevation, so 8, 10 up to 9, uh, or no, it's 850 to 910 mm -hmm. foot elevation. Now, right next to Abbey Ridge Vineyard, mm -hmm. um, which is actually kind of connecting a lot of dots because a lot of the original Beaufrere cuttings came from Abbey Ridge. So they started at Abbey, they went to Beaufrere, and now they're back to the vineyard bordering Abbey. Um, so that's been a fun development. I'm getting my first harvest uh, this summer. Um, and then I have another vineyard uh, that I planted on Herring Lane just next to Anderson Family Vineyard um, with a partner, um, Texas family, um, the Fishers. Not the Fishers that I uh, worked for in California. They're um, just wine lovers that I actually met at Fisher Vineyards. They rang the gate late in the night I was topping barrels, I let them in, we became friends, and here we are, you know, planting vines, so. Amazing. Same vines selection, it's um, the cuttings, Beaufrere, Marsal selected, uh, Pinot and Chard, hyper rocky site with um, cobblestone, um, a very warm site, so different from I think the Warden Hill site is high elevation, elegant, and the Warden, uh, the um, Herring Lane site is uh, warm, uh, 300, uh, uh, 300 feet to 400 foot range, south panel, super steep, um, crazy vineyard site. I mean, I uh, every time I drive the tractor on there, it's. Uh, it's white knuckle, which is fun. Um, but uh, 
<clears throat> those are fun developments. Eric and I, uh, my wife, are um, working those vineyards together a lot and um, kind of babying them along. Um, yeah, so those are the other things uh, along with Roy that we're, we're doing. And of course, you two just got married recently and just yeah. welcomed your first child. Congratulations yep. on that. Yep. Mr. Dart. Mr. Dart. Yeah. So uh, more babying to be done there, I suppose. Yep. I'm, how are we doing? Are we doing okay on uh, camera time? Cool. Okay, cool. One, one last question for you that kind of prompts me there. Uh, you mentioned Furiosa specifically and working with Dom over there. I'm curious, when there's a when you're consulting at a place that has a winemaker, what is your role as mm -hmm. a consultant? How do, you, how do you define your role? Um, just a, another voice and a perspective, um, a soundboard. And, um, you know, I would say viticulturally is where I'm a louder voice and um, a little bit more suggestive um, than uh, the winemaking. And I would say that's um, my biggest role at Furioso is viticulturally. Um, I come in on the blends, uh, you know, I'll submit my blend, Dom submits his. Um, it seems like uh, one year we taste blind and we choose his blends and another year it's my blends that make the cut. So it's kind of fun. Uh, I think Giorgio likes having uh, both of us there and um, you know uh, I helped find Dom for Furioso. It was Mikey. Mikey had worked with Dom at Willa Kenzie and said you know, I, w I was looking for somebody. I said, hey, we need somebody at Furio, so I can't be there every single day. Uh, and he said, Dom's perfect. He's hyper-detailed, and uh, he's uh, great to work with. So that's where Dom came in, and, uh, and it's been really great. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, hospitality. Thank you. For sharing your wine with us and yeah. your newborn with us, I guess, suppose, as well. Yeah. And we'll uh, go ahead and let you off the hook. All right. Thanks, thank guys. You. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.